I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is award-winning haiku poet Randy Brooks. He's been writing haiku all of his adult life, and in that time he has also been a publisher of haiku literary magazines and books. He's the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at Millican University in Decatur, Illinois. Then I'll be reviewing a book by poet laureate Robert Haas, which is an excellent collection called The Essential Haiku. It provides background on the genre and includes many high-quality translations. Our feature today is Randy Brooks. His publishing house is called Brooks Books, and he's talking to me from Decatur, Illinois, a certainly appropriately humble location for a haiku master. Hi, Randy. I'm glad you're here. Hi, Charlie. It's so good to be here with you. <laughs> I want to start right off with something you told me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you were talking, uh, we were setting this up, and you said, well, I wrote down, haiku got legs. And I'm wondering, what did, were you telling me when I wrote that down? Yeah. Well, what I was talking about is that uh, a little-known fact of most poets is that some of your poetry gets very popular and starts getting legs. It starts moving about. The first uh, thing might just be a reading somewhere where you read it out loud. And somebody loves to say, oh, I'd like to put that in my magazine. And it gets published. And then somebody has an anthology. They say, I love that one. It was in that magazine. I want to publish it again. So haiku with legs are leg haiku that, that spread and, and move about and get published in multiple times, four or five or even more times um, in the life of that, that haiku. So I guess a, a goal, which you can't really try for, but you're happy when you achieve it, is to have a haiku that's got legs. That's, yes, that's right. It's <laughs> about. It gets, it gets momentum of itself. It's like the haiku takes off and has its own little life that wanders around in the world. Do you have any haiku with legs? I, I do have some haiku with legs. Uh, you want to hear one or two? Sure. Here's one that's an appropriate haiku with legs. Miles to go, no tracks ahead of us in the snow. That's definitely appropriate. <laughs> as, as we speak, the monster snowstorm is coming in on the East Coast. That's right. That's what I was thinking. Here's another one with, with a little bit of snow connection to it, with uh, a haiku with legs. The night shift arrives, a dusting of snow on some of the cars. That must have really happened because... I, w I couldn't imagine making it up. How'd that happen? It, well, that's just what it was, huh? It is one of those things where, you know, you, you think about the coming and going of people and the changes, you know, that are, that are happening. And, and you can measure some of the things that go on, such as the snow, by how much snow is piled up in the meanwhile. And so here we've got this change going on. And, and just the very moment of the change of the shift, We've also got this snow coming on. So, so this is before the big blizzard comes. Um, here's another haiku with legs. We're gonna we're gonna change seasons here entirely. All of our canoes touch at the north mouth of the lake. More water lilies. Hmm. That's a neat scene. I guess that would have to be like haiku with like uh, paddles or something instead of legs. <laughs> I notice uh, you're reading your haiku 
once. And uh, I know that many people are into haiku when they read them, read them twice. And you you told me you're you're not not fond of that practice. You think it's really not necessary. Uh, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, I agree that um, I really don't think it's appropriate to read them twice. I I like to read them very slowly. Um, and if you see me read, you know I like to you know use my hands and I'm I'm bringing the haiku to life and um, let the let the reader just just take it in within the haiku itself one time and then I try to give them enough pause afterwards to let them process it themselves and hopefully it echoes and repeated in their head uh, but yeah I'm not fond of reading it twice I like it to have its impact immediately and one time as a as a way to read yeah and talk by the way I, th I think we probably should should say a little bit about uh, how you uh, personally, I don't know if I want to say just think of haiku. I don't want to say define haiku, but more like maybe think about uh, what it is, uh, what what makes a haiku, because, you know, the 575 argument and all that sort of thing, uh, it doesn't get at the essence of it. That, that's that's really a good question, Charlie, you know, and, and I know a lot of people have confusion about haiku. They think of it as a form. In fact, they think of it as a closed form. And that's very unfortunate because haiku is such an open form. Um, haiku, instead of being defined by syllables, five, seven, five syllables, or a sense of it's a small sort of definitive statement, you know, it's all closed up in a box for people to open. I think of haiku as entirely the opposite. It's as an open form, a free verse form. Um, and that the main the main conception of haiku that I would believe in a in a synoptic way can be expressed is that haiku is a poem that that has a small small sort of opening for the reader to join into. So the real form of haiku is something you're going to hear. It's oral, it's oral in your ear, you know. And and so the real form of haiku is that you you get the first part, two lines in the water. And then there's this pause, there's this silence in the middle. Uh, the cut, or what the Japanese call the kiriji, has a kiriji word, a cutting word. So there's that, that pause in the middle, and that pause is an invitation for the reader to come into the haiku. And so then, then you get the second half of the haiku. Not a word between father and son. So I'll read that haiku again. I'll, I'll violate my idea about not reading a haiku twice. You get this one twice. So here's the haiku as I really would just read it without interruption. Two lines in the water. Not a word between father and son. So the form of haiku is something you hear. And, and you'll hear this in haiku one after the other, in Japanese, in English, and almost all haiku around the world, in Spanish, in different languages. You'll get the first phrase or image. And you get that pause, that, that time to just wait and let the first one be absorbed by the reader and taken in so the reader can start imagining and associating, anticipating what's coming next, you know, and then they get the second half of the reader. And there's another pause at the end, that silence where you give the reader time to take it in and put it back together and make it whole in their own mind. And, and that's why we talk about haiku as as a co-creative process with the reader. I like the, the pause. And, and when you read it that second time, you know, without the talk, it it really came through. And I don't recall hearing at haiku readings that kind of 
um, effective, let's say dramatic use of that pause. Uh, and it, to me, it really makes your point. Uh, you, you need that, that openness in there. And it also does give the reader time to comprehend a message that's coming in a very compact way. And, and you've got to be able to keep up with it as, as the listener or reader. Well, especially as the listener. That's right. It's very important. I mean, I, I stress to, to my students when I'm teaching haiku and, and the importance of the oral tradition and, and the importance of reading out loud. And, and I stress upon them, too, again, that, um, you know, in the, in the haiku tradition, there's a longstanding um, tradition called kukai, where there's competition, um, where people are sharing their haiku anonymously and things. And in that process as well, the Japanese say a haiku is not born. It does not exist until a reader takes it fully into heart and loves it. And when the reader loves the haiku and makes it complete, that's when the haiku comes into existence. So, so I always kid my, my students, say, oh, today we're going to give birth to a lot of haiku. You're all haiku midwives. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because... Um, one can be inclined to think of haiku as a solitary kind of of poetry to deal with. It's they're contemplate. They tend to be contemplative statements that come from the poet. So yeah. what you're saying about the, the the necessity of someone else being involved is really different than that. Yes, that, that is really interesting. It is a, is a, a contrast to it. You know, we we. Uh, we certainly have a long-standing tradition of haiku as sort of a quiet contemplation, a meditative practice, a, um, a quieting the self down to see and hear and notice and have insight into things. And I think that's also very important for the for the writing of haiku to, that you find places that take time and slow down enough to really do that deep thinking that's behind the sort of uh, finding of haiku and writing of haiku. Mm -hmm. But um, haiku is very social, and it, it does necessitate um, being heard and being shared. And so the whole point of haiku really is not just to be the hermit out there writing your own thoughts to yourself, but uh, to, to find your haiku wherever, maybe in such, such things as in meditation. Um, but the whole point is to take it out and share it because you've got wonderful gifts of insight or awareness that you just are eager to share with other people. And so the social nature of haiku is something that I think people don't understand as much as they, they could. Um, there's a lot of really fun elements to haiku that's about, about the social process of, of sharing your work. And, and, and again, that's part of that being the haiku with legs. People just can't hold it in. They want to take it on out and share it again. And that's a very natural thing for good haiku. So how, how many people are on to this? Because you know, I, don't, I don't hear much about haiku parties. And I'm just wondering, that's great. You're telling me this. I like it. Uh, but then I'm thinking, have I heard other haiku people talk about having haiku parties or whatever? And I'm, I'm not exactly, uh, you know, it's not, not right in front of my mind here, haiku parties. Well, well you know, I would say that this is something that's really growing uh, quite a lot here in the, in the last 15 years. Um, you know, I would say before the internet and the web back in the in the 70s and, and early 80s, it was more of a solitary practice probably. And the only social elements was really the magazines or journals and, 
and, and a little bit of the Haiku Society of America or something like that. But really in the last 15 years, 15, 20 years, both through the social media of the web where people can share, interact and blog and, and, and they have a, a workshop that's very interactive and stuff. The social elements growing there and people getting to know each other more as well. But then also people have really found it's fun to have a local haiku group, a gathering that meets like about once a month where people bring in their latest work and they share it. And sometimes they follow the Japanese tradition of kukai where it's all anonymous at first. And it's a revealing of the author when somebody loves a haiku. Um, so, so I would say it's definitely growing in, in that we have a lot more sort of smaller groups of haiku poets, and this is around the world actually, who are gathering on a pretty regular basis and uh, sharing their work. And this, it's not your typical just sort of uh, we're coming to edit our work and you know tear each other's work apart so we can now send it out to the magazines. It really is truly a sharing it and enjoying it and loving it for what it is. And yes, we can't help but make suggestions for improvement. How do you, how do you work the anon, an, anonymity thing? Do people toss them all in a, in a hat and then pull them out and randomly, like I might read yours or somebody else's? Well, it could be like that. I mean, in, in the uh, Japanese tradition of Kukai, and again, the Japanese haiku writers have almost always been organized in these small social groups too, by the way, with a sensei or a master who leads the group. Um, but in, in most of our kukai here in the United States now, and um, in English, um, we usually would just have people submit their haiku ahead of time, and then a person will put a sheet of them together without any names. And then oh. those will be shared and, and read, and then people say, oh, I love this one over here uh, because it just reminds me of this, and I love the feeling of that. Oh, what wonderful wording in this one. And then people will also talk about that one together. And then we'll say, oh, and who wrote this one? Oh, so-and-so wrote it. And then we applaud or cheer, and, and they, are, they, have, they have claimed their child, their haiku, their haiku baby, you know, at that point. Um, so it's, it's a great deal of fun. I, I do it with my students on a regular basis all through the semester. And the students love kukai. And there's, there's different types of kukai. That, that's the most traditional one. Um, in Japan, they would do kukai by painting their, their haiku with the brush, you know, on these long strips of paper called shikishi. And their names are on the backside, so they don't have it on there yet. And they just lay them out have some some refreshments and food or you know a little little sake or beer or whatever and and enjoy them and talk about them and then it'd be time for kukai somebody will lift one up and say i love this one and, and let's hear it out loud and talk about it and and so it's so it's very it's a very fun social sort of competition competition i mean one of the rules of kukai is you're not supposed to say i love this haiku except for the third line is really bad mm. you know you're not supposed to tear it down at all or, or do edit sort of things with it when you're in true kuka. You're just supposed to say, I love it just the way it is because. Well, that, that's going to set up a pleasant evening together with friends, with fellow haikuists. It's very fun. It really is. How about reading a few more poems here? Sure. Here's some more from Haiku with Legs. The Bedtime Story. Her grown-up brothers listen to mother's voice. Here's another one. Moonrise, cattle single file through the narrow pasture gate. I, I grew up in Western Kansas and this was some of my haiku come from growing up and, and uh, on the ranch and in the, my other, other grandfather's yeah. uh, farm. Here's one about my grandpa. 
Grandpa drags his daybed to the front porch. Mockingbird song. That one with the cattle going single file. Yeah. That reminds me of one of these, uh, of Busan being highly, highly visual. Mm. Um, I can really just, would you read that one again now? Moonrise. Cattle single file through the narrow pasture gate. Yeah, Busan is wonderful at, at painting the scene and, and capturing that sense of mood and atmosphere in that, in that place. Here's, here's one, another one. Um, a pause in her going to town story. Needle threaded again. Again, a haiku about noticing another kind of pause in creativity, that, that, that time when somebody's in the middle of something, but they, they're, they're in a transition, they got to thread the needle, there's a little bit of quiet. They're not really doing what they're doing. And and she has to sort of hold off also on the story that was going on while she was sewing, while she concentrates on getting that thread through the needle. Here's another one. A dad buried in the white sand. Hairy toes wiggle free. And another one sort of in warm climate since they're in the middle of winter. Hands on the rail. The humpback whale doesn't resurface. And here's one for summer. Mellow thunder. I slip off my sandals to feel the cool. What do you have to say about uh, mediacy in haiku? Um, I, I find myself with haiku I don't like. They try to tell too much of a story. Mm-hmm. That's the way I would characterize it anyway. This, the yeah. person just tried to jam. They should have written a, a short story or a, a longer poem. Uh, it just is, is flabby. I, I think that's a really interesting question, you know, because uh, haiku usually have a couple levels. There's, there's is an immediacy sort of to it. You get it, go, boom, oh, yeah, I see it. That's it. And you get an immediate response and, a, and reaction to it. And so there's a sort of surface level or immediate, oh, this is what's happening right now level that can just look like that's it. It's, that's the whole story or something. And a good haiku is going to resonate on some deeper level. It's going to be, be a, a level that resonates back to the past or to culture or to values or to spirituality or religion, or it's going to tap into some other plane of, of significance. And it's, it's in the resonating that, that when the haiku sort of rings the bell, but in the resonating, we start connecting it to things that are more than just what we see on the surface. So if immediacy is all the haiku has, then, well, that's, that's nice for a moment, but it's not one that goes deeper into some of the things that finally ultimately matter a lot more. So, so, so it has to have both, really, to be really good as a haiku. Uh, the surface immediately what's happening now and some deeper, more long, long-term associations or allusions to the past or, or to values beyond what's happening yeah. immediately. Could you, could you use one of the poems you've read so far at any time uh, we've been talking here to, to give an example of how you, like you looking at your own poem, how you see that, that deeper level? Sure. It's not always obvious to people just listening the first time. Yeah, they like it, but they don't, you know. Okay, well, let me let me just take one I've already read and yeah. talk about that one. 
So miles to go, no tracks ahead of us in the snow. On an immediate level, it's just about you've got a long way to go. You're you're walking, and there's nobody gone this path before. You are venturing into into the snow with you're the first one walking through here. And on the immediate level, that's you've got a long way to go. This is going to be a long walk. You what's happened now? Is your car broken down and you got to walk to get out of there, or you know, or is this just that you're on a hike and there's a lot of snow and you're still you know, you've got your destination out there and you're, you're starting to sort of measure how far it's. So that's the surface level or the immediate level of just what's happening. Mm-hmm. You know, as we imagine it, though, and we're out there, we no tracks ahead of us in the snow. There's this whole path behind us. There's all those tracks. behind. We can see everywhere we come from. And and we can see that, um, you know, it is an adventure of nobody's been here yet. I'm the first one who's going to see this snow, this landscape in this way. So there's a bit of adventure in it. And then and then there's also with Miles to Go, it has a slight illusion or reference to Robert Frost, you know, and so suddenly Robert Frost might come to your head if if you're somebody who knows poetry and, and has read things. So here we've got this whole real brief illusion to a Robert Frost poem, and that comes in, and then that one's all about enduring and about about persevering and about about um not giving up and and those sort of feelings. So now we've got this whole other poem going on in our head if we know that. And so miles to go, no tracks ahead of us in the snow. It's this thing that's, of course, it's got rhyme to it, which is unusual in haiku and in my haiku too, it's unusual. So so you'll see on on another level, this haiku really isn't about just being there. It's about how we expect to be in the future and how we've got a past behind us and we don't know what the future holds. All those sort of sort of question issues become part of the haiku. Of course, I would really hope the reader can go there and and that's a lot more than I expected the reader to do in a fast reading, but you know, in a slow reading and and repeated reading or whatever, they they might, Mm -hmm. if they want to dive in, I hope there's more for them that it's around the poem. It's it's the uh, also with with the other one you read um, with the hands on the rail and the whale that reminded me of how poetry sometimes we respond to it because you go yeah I've been there mm-hmm. and and that that's a, for me a big part of the response sometimes you know reflecting back to when I had my hands on the rail or you know it was a whale watching effort and that's certainly something that we try to do in haiku is let people enter into the poem and imagine themselves as living the poem you know and and that's why we write haiku in the present tense we just put people in the middle of yeah. something happening right now. And and unfortunately, sometimes people don't understand that even though we do that, we want to put a person in the sense of I'm there living it. We also want them to be there fully in their whole mind, imagining and, 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 and associating and feeling things beyond what's said. So filling in the silences and gaps. And that's that's where a lot of that resonating beyond the immediacy it's also beyond the reader's immediacy. And the reader takes the immediate thing. Oh, I remember being there, looking for the whale, looking for the whale. Somebody yelled, well, we all run to the side and grab a hold. I didn't see the whale. Did you see the whale? No, I didn't see the whale. <laughs> it was there. I'm sure it was. No, they saw it. You know. What do you tell students how to watch out? Like, I think people who don't spend much time on haiku and looking closely or trying to learn more about it don't know the difference. And they think any little short statement, oh, that's a haiku. You know, yeah. um, I don't know. 
Very, very good question. Yeah, you know, and the so what haiku is, I would, I would call it the who cares haiku. You know, um, is really what I what I would sort of rephrase it as. Usually, who cares? You know, and and so significance or or caring about something or making it is this something worth writing about? Is this something worth sharing with other people? It does come down to what what finally matters, and and inevitably there are some haiku that somebody over here is going over and they love that haiku and I'm sitting there going I just don't get much from it I'm sorry you know and so so part of that depends on the taste of the, of the readers a little bit or the writer but ultimately it is it is a matter of a sort of a trust uh, between the reader and the writer that the that the writer has noticed or felt or realized or seen something that's worthwhile enough or important enough that they want to share it they want to put it and, and they want to capture the significance of, of that, that, that insight, that awareness that, you know, and so, you know, you, you use that as, okay, well, that's what we're going to give you as a, as a sort of starting point. We trust you had something that's important to say. I'm going to read this and I hope I just get into it, enjoy it. And I start imagining and feeling it. You know, if I don't, then I'm going to probably say, well, so what? Okay. So, so, you know, it's, it's, it is an issue of, of uh, you know, not everything that happens in the world, not everything you see matters. You can't write about it all. So you have to select and choose what you're going to write about. And tell the students that in their journals, write whatever. Write a lot of so what. Write just, just write. Be fluent. But then look back through and see which ones are worth working on or editing or which ones are worth sharing with others. And, you know, you just try it. You send out five to your friend, your email five. Yeah, I'm working on these five, or there's one you really like. They love this one, and here's why. Oh, maybe that one's happening and connecting to people more than the other. Yeah. So it's it's hard for the learn beginnings writer to know which of their poems are going to resonate to others. But that's that's where the reading and the sharing and getting published and having editors makes a huge difference because they're helping you say, that one mattered for me. That one has significance. So getting past the so what is is a tricky thing for a new writer, but but that's partly what they learn as a writer that some are going to be valued more by themselves and by others. Let's finish off with a few more of of your poems. Okay, just, uh, just give us a few more. All right. Legendary catfish caught once or twice, the brackish lagoon. Hot tub beneath the stars, her finger over my lips to shut me up. <laughs> that, re that resonates beautifully. It's such a realistic interaction. It's that great scene and a realistic interaction. All right, here's, a, here's another. Holding hands until we reach the blackberries. Here's one, it's a, it's a coming of summer. Jenny Wren returns. Her mother whispers, I can go now. You're listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, and our guest today, Randy Brooks, telling us about haiku and sharing his work with us. Thanks a lot, Randy. This has really been good. Thank you, Charlie. It's been, it's been wonderful to, to chat with you today. listening to Poetry Spoken Here.
We turn now to a book by U.S. Poet Laureate Robert Haas. If you'd like to know more about haiku or wondering where to begin, this is a very good place to start. The book, The Essential Haiku, provides background on the genre and includes many high-quality haiku translations. Haas has received many awards for his poetry, including the National Book Award, the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, and a prestigious MacArthur Fellowship. The Essential Haiku was published back in 1994, just before he served as Poet Laureate, 1995-97. The book's still available and is an excellent introduction to haiku as it provides background on the genre and focuses on the work of three great acknowledged masters of the form, Basho, Busan, and Isa, with brief biographies and a generous selection of poems by each of the poets. In his introduction, Haas says he wants to provide a sense of the variety and intensity of experiences that this small form can sustain. He goes on to say, What is in these poems can't be had elsewhere. About the things of the world and the mind looking at the things of the world and the moments and the language in which they try to express them, they have unusual wakefulness and clarity. Haas notes that the three poets who are his focus have distinctive attitudes as well as distinctive voices. Basho is the ascetic, spiritual member of the trio. His poems reflect his philosophical concerns and his endless spiritual seeking. Here's an example. Summer grass, all that's left of warriors' dreams. Basho wrote this poem when, in his travels, he came upon the scene of an ancient battle. As he looked out over the battlefield, he noted that all that's left of the bygone conflict is an empty field of summer grass. Those who fought here and the violence they suffered are long gone. Busan, also known for his visual art, brings the artist's sensibility to his haiku. When we hear a Busan haiku, we can see the scene that he experienced when he wrote the poem. They end their flight one by one, crows at dusk. This is a poem that means just what it says. It clearly depicts a scene and leaves the reader with a feeling that is no doubt similar to the feeling Busan experienced when he wrote it. Finally, Esau, the humanist, consistently reflects his awareness of his connection with all around him, all sentient beings, even the insects. Humility is a prominent feature of his poems, as in the poignant picture he paints in this haiku. Naked, on a naked horse, in pouring rain. It's important to note that when poets of Haas' stature delve into haiku, the results are often extremely disappointing. This is not the case here. Haas deserves high praise for this fine collection because he has obviously taken the time and effort to do extensive research into the topic. His understanding of haiku poetics is palpable and his efforts have paid off in a book that remains a valuable resource, even now, 
decades after being published. I'm Charlie Rossiter for Poetry Spoken Here. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetry spoken here. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetry spoken here. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.